there are a couple of different ways that we can make proclamations. we're probably the most familiar with the kinds of proclamations that we make using our words proclamations like it's a boy or it's a girl. that's happening a lot this year here at river church or i'm in love or we're getting married or it's my birthday we're we're used to verbal proclamations but if you think about it we can also and commonly make a lot of proclamations without using our words just using our actions. for instance the fact that you parked your car this morning outside of the cafeteria is making a proclamation to every family that also parked their car for football. it's going to catch their attention. like you don't have to say a word about you came to church this morning. your car, the action that you had of parking your car right here is making a proclamation to all the football families that are playing football right now. that's kind of cool. the tough buddy is a massive proclamation. Yes, it's a chance to use our words to invite friends to church that may not come any other way, uh, just because of the unique opportunity that we have to cover small children in mud um, and have a great day as moms and dads. But there's so much proclaiming going on that day that has nothing to do with our words. The fact that we're having church outdoors is a proclamation. It's something that should you mention that to a co-worker this week, you are proclaiming to them that your church is okay with being a little flexible with where they meet. You're kind of proclaiming that our church is more than just four walls and a roof that we normally assemble under. That it's actually more about the relationships and the content of our time together than it is the actual place. Just saying that you're going to church outside next week, meeting outside, is a form of proclamation. Wearing a shirt like this or a River Church shirt and volunteering is another way of making a proclamation that you're part of an organization that's trying to make a difference in the community. It is making a proclamation as well. So we're familiar with our words, and sometimes we proclaim things with our words and we look forward to those moments, but we're also proclaiming things with our actions all the time. And that's the, the entry thought that I want to put into your mind this morning as we continue our study about biblical finances using primarily the book of Genesis. And so this is kind of week three. Next week, I'll be making a clear gospel presentation from the book of Revelation. I'm very excited about that and the beauty of the passage that the Lord has put on my heart. And then the last Sunday in September, we'll wrap up our time of studying finances. What's interesting is even though we're talking about finances for just four uh, Sundays in September, did you know that about uh, one-third of Jesus' parables had to deal with money? That there's more written about our finances in the Bible than grace and love combined. And yet we normally spend, you know, almost every Sunday talking about something other than our finances. Because it can be kind of a sticky wicket for us because probably none of us in our, are in a position uh, where we are stress-free regarding our finances. And it's very personal how we, the Bible says, you know, how we use our money is an indicator of where our heart is. And so we understand that. And so we don't talk about it a lot, but the Bible talks about our finances with great clarity and boldness. And this morning, I'd like to do, continue in that same vein, just being very clear about what the New Testament, about the Bible says in Genesis and specifically a little bit in the New Testament. And I've also been saying every Sunday this month that we are going to be making decisions of faith this month. I mean, it's our hope every Sunday that we make decisions of faith for salvation or for baptism or for our closeness to the Lord or for repentance for known sin. Uh, 
This month, we're going to be making decisions of faith regarding our finances, and we're going to introduce to you exactly what that is going to look like uh, at the end of our time together this morning. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 14 is where we're going to start. We have seen from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that within God's provision for his people, God provides everything, that he retains a portion for his purposes. Uh, sometimes it's for meeting needs of other people who have less resources, and sometimes it's for the purpose of meeting future needs of the saints. We saw that the first week. Last week, we saw that God's portion has a priority to it, that if it's first, it's by faith. That if we are giving to the Lord from the first of our income instead of the last or the extra or the leftover of our income, that that is a 100% guarantee that we are giving in faith, which is exactly what we saw uh, the difference between Cain and Abel's sacrifice. This morning, we are going to be answering the question from the book of Genesis primarily, but also a few other passages, and wrestling with this principle and trying to understand why it's so important. And here's the big idea this morning, that there is a percentage to God's portion. That the amount matters. That it's not just whatever we think we can do or is convenient for us, but that there is a percent when it comes to our biblical finances that is God's portion that we dedicate to Him. And let me show you where that comes from. Beginning in Genesis chapter 14, it's the story of the first time someone ever made this kind of offering to the Lord, and it's Abraham. Join me in Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 17. The first time that someone made this kind of offering in the Bible. After Abram returned from defeating Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shabbat, that is, the king's valley. Let me give you a little bit of context here, real briefly. In the northern part of what we would now consider northern Israel, there was a, a group of four kings that were kind of living together in the valley, in the plains. Abram's nephew, his name had not been changed to Abraham at this point in the text, Lot, was living amongst these four cities. Sodom and Gomorrah and a few other cities were included in these cities in the plains. Five kings from the north looked at this fertile piece of geography and all of the wealth that was being produced from there and said, and now it's ours. And, you know, they fight. And the kings from the north, the five kings from the north, won. They whooped up on the four kings from the south. Uh, and, and I'm saying south, but I mean the northern part of Israel in, in a very fertile area, valley. Uh, lots of stuff was growing very happily there. And they took all the things, including the people. So basically they expanded their kingdom. They came down from what we would say is like modern-day Syria and took over northern Israel. That's what happened. Five kings whooped up on four. And so Abraham hears about this and says, oh, no, you don't, because now you're messing with my family. I have alliances with some of these kings of the valley, and that's just sick and wrong. You're not playing nicely in the sandbox. So Abram, with a much smaller army of 318 trained soldiers, goes and beats up on the five kings from modern-day Syria, and he wins. Now Abram is coming back home, and kings are coming out to greet him and meet him to basically say, good job, thanks for saving all of our people and returning our stuff. That's what's happening right now. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, or Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. Melchizedek is a mysterious character in the Old Testament. In the book of Hebrews, he's referenced as a type of 
Jesus Christ before Jesus was born. So there's a possibility here that this Melchizedek guy was maybe Jesus himself in a form before he was born as Jesus, or possibly he was just a, a really cool guy that was worshiping the Lord truly, who also happens to be the king of Jerusalem. There's some mystery about exactly who this guy is, but the one thing that biblical scholars are clear on is that this is a righteous guy, and he is at least a shadow or a foretype of Jesus. But he was a priest of God most high. This guy, Melchizedek, blessed Abraham and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and I give praise to God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. The text continues, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. We would call that a tithe. But a tithe literally means a tenth. That if I work for $10 an hour, one of those dollars belongs as God's portion, a tenth. So tithing, tenthing, this is the first time it shows up in the Bible. And Abraham, or Abram at the time, was the first one to do it. So the question is, why? And it gets even weirder. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, because all of his people had been kidnapped, essentially by the Syrians. But take the possessions for yourself. Keep our entire country's worth of stuff. Just, just give me my people back. So he's offering Abram untold wealth, the wealth of a nation, of a city. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to Yahweh, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten. So, the one king who didn't have any of his stuff stolen, who didn't have any of his people kidnapped, Melchizedek, prays a prayer of blessing over Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth of the loot. This other guy, who had all this stuff taken, and all his people taken, says, give me my people, but keep all the loot. Which Abram earned, he risked his life. He risked the life of every male servant that he had. If ever there was a welfare paycheck, it was a time when Abram risked everything and battled a vastly greater force and won. Abraham deserved the payday. And yet he refuses to take anything. What is Abraham's problem? Why is he giving money to the guy that actually had nothing leveraged in this? He didn't have a dog in the fight. But now Abram's giving him a tent. And a guy who did have all the dogs in the fight, he's not taking anything. Abram gives the reason. He says, so that you can never say, I made Abram rich. Abram understood that if he was going to profit, if he was going to subsist, to exist in the land, if he was going to experience any form of sustenance or wealth at all, it was because God was providing for him. He did not want to become a patron of some king who now would feel that he had some kind of control over him because he made him wealthy because he gave Abraham all this stuff for his city. I will be beholden to no person whatsoever. The Lord provides for me. I'm going to give a tenth of what I've earned to this man of God who prayed a blessing over me 
and I'm going to give you all the stuff that belongs to you because I don't ever want you to say that anything other than God caused me to prosper. So Abram makes a big decision of faith here and then does exactly that. Abram is the first one in the Bible, long before the law, long before it's commanded, to give a tenth because he recognized God's portion. His life had been spared and he received vast wealth from his expedition. And he knew he had the Lord's favor. And then we go on to Genesis chapter 15, which I don't have time to talk about today, where God makes the most famous promise in the Bible regarding the nation of Israel. It's the promise where you will have descendants that are as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky. All the land where you're currently residing will belong to you and your people. It's called the Abrahamic promise or the Abrahamic covenant, a direct result of Abraham saying, if I amount to anything financially, it's because God has caused me to prosper. And so I give him a tenth, not because any man has given me what was due. Powerful, powerful principle here for tenthing or tithing. So is this story in Genesis a one-off, or is it a type that we should be following today? That's a great question. Just because this happened thousands of years ago, uh, is this something that we should still be doing? Should we still be tenthing or tithing? Should we recognize that there is a percentage to God's portion? Or is this something that is just a nice story that we can kind of move on because the Bible is full of a lot of things that we don't practice regularly? Excellent question. Let's trace tenthing or tithing through Abraham's family and let them answer that question for us. The next person we'd like to take a look at is Jacob, his grandson. And this story is found in Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Now, Jacob's name literally means he grasps. He was a twin brother. His brother was born ahead of him, and he was grabbing his ankle when he was born, and they named him Jacob. He grasped. And so you might be familiar with the stories regarding Jacob that he was he was split. He, 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 could, he could deceive people. He could tell whoppers uh, to try and create gain for himself. And when this story picks up that we're going to read this morning, he's on the run for his life because his brother had made a vow to kill him because Jacob had stolen a blessing that belonged to his brother. So Jacob's on the run. Uh, and this is where the story picks up. Genesis chapter 28, beginning at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba, Beersheba and went toward Haran. He's, he's traveling to distant family. He's traveling to Abraham's relatives, uh, about a thousand, about uh, five or six hundred miles to the east, right around what we would call like the eastern coast of modern day or eastern boundary of like modern day Jordan is where uh, Jacob is fleeing to right now, going to his uncle's house. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place and put it there at his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching heaven, and God's angels were going up and down on it. Yahweh was standing there beside him, just to read the first instance of an elevator in the scripture. He sees Helicopters were when the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters in Genesis chapter 1. Elevators, Genesis chapter 28. There we are. I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land that you are now sleeping on. 
Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will walk over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The reason I didn't read the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 15, after Abraham tithes or tenths for the first time, after promising that it's always going to be known that God is the one that prospers him, not the fruit of his own hands, is because it's repeated in Genesis chapter 28. In Jacob's vision of the stairway to heaven, God repeats the promise that he made to his grandfather, Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Watch what Jacob does in response. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the, this is the gate of heaven. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. Then Jacob made a vow. First time someone makes a vow in the Bible, right here. If God will be with me and watch over me on this journey, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give you a tenth of all that you give me. Abraham pledges a tenth after risking his life and receives the Abrahamic covenant in return. The Abrahamic covenant is repeated to his grandson, and his grandson responds by making the same pledge that his grandfather did. God has his portion. We know that when we prioritize his portion, it's by faith, and there is a percentage. According to Abraham and to, and to his grandson Jacob, it's a tenth. You see, what's interesting here is Jacob had nothing. He's sleeping on rocks, right? And he's pledging his future income, a tenth of it, to God should the Lord provide for him. Is he scheming? Is he back to his old wagering, bargaining tricks? Or is he making one of the greatest declarations of faith found in the book of Genesis? Yeah, it's Jacob. A little bit of both. A little bit of both. But what we find here is that in response to the great promise of provision made to his grandfather, both of these guys, the founders of the nation of Israel, pledge a tenth back to the Lord. It's what they thought would, would be right to pledge back to the Lord should the Lord provide for them. There were a lot of different things that Jacob could have done. He could have built an altar there. He could have uh, made all sorts of promises about other things that would take place at that site. But he doesn't. He pledges a tenth of whatever the Lord would prosper him with. Here's why 10% matters to the Lord and we consider it a biblical tithe or a practice that should be continued to this day. And I'm going to show you some more text as well. Because a tenth is a proclamation. A tenth is a proclamation, not with words, but with our money, that the Lord is providing for us. The reason Abraham gave a tenth back to Melchizedek 
and did not receive or see the stuff that he had rightfully fought for and earned himself was that he wanted to make a clear proclamation, a clear declaration, a clear testimony that the Lord is the one who provides for me. It's not through the strength of my own hand. It's not through the generosity of powerful men. The Lord provides for me. So the man that prays for me, that is a righteous man, an early type of Christ, I will give a tenth of my proceeds to him. A tenth is a testimony. A tenth percent of what the Lord blesses us with is a proclamation, not with our words. It is a proclamation with our finances, with our actions, that we are looking to the Lord to provide. Not the powerful people who buy us paychecks, and not our good intentions or hard work or effort, which the Lord has also blessed us with. I hope you can begin to see it from the text. I want to show you in the Old Testament, because one of the things that comes up when people ask about tithing, is it something that Christians should do? They say, well, that is an Old Testament law, and Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law, and really we don't need to be worried about the Old Testament law the same way we're not worried about wearing tassels on the corner of our garments, the same way we're not worried about whether or not we eat selfish, the same way we're not really worried about whether or not the husband can shave or not. All of them also commanded in the Old Testament. Why do we pick out tithing or tenting and say that that's still something for the New Testament church, whereas the other stuff is not? And uh, there's two answers. One, tithing was practiced before any of the law was given. And number two, tithing is rooted in the very nature of God himself. God provides everything for us. He reserves a portion, as we saw in the Garden of Eden. There is a priority to that portion, as we saw in Cain and Abel. And there is a percentage to that portion, as we see with Abraham and with Jacob. And yes, it is found in the law. The clearest command to give a tenth to the Lord, uh, to the nation of Israel, is found in Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 and 32. And they read, Every tenth of the land's produce, grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. We're going to see, when we study one more passage at the end of September, that God actually considers us consuming his portion, or if his portion is consumed, that that is actually, he views it as theft. He views it as stealing. Because his heart is revealed here in this command that a tenth of what the Lord provides is holy to him. It is his portion. Continuing in uh, verse 32, Leviticus says, Every tenth animal is from, from the herd or flock, which passes under the shepherd's rod, will be holy to the Lord. Whether it comes from the ground or whether it comes from the sheep pen, one-tenth is holy to the Lord. Uh, and so we do see that the Old Testament law, whatever the Lord provides, whether you're a farmer or a shepherd, one-tenth is his portion. He considers it his, holy to him. There's a priority to it. It comes from the first before there's a guarantee of any more increase. And uh, the percentage matters. That a tenth is considered a proclamation. Less than a tenth is not really considered the same strength of a proclamation. And there's no reason to proclaim more than a tenth. There are times to be generous and sacrificial. We'll talk about that later on as well. But what God is commanding his people and is modeled by Abraham and Jacob is one tenth. And so there is a percentage. And this is where we see it in the Old Testament. If we just left it there, 
I can see how New Testament Christians could make an argument that really we don't want to get bound up in the law, we don't want to get legalistic. And let me just pop any bubbles of concern or fear that you might be feeling. It's like, okay, Josh, I see the point of this sermon. You're saying that God's people give a tenth of their income. So, you know, let's let's really break it down. Is someone going to collect my W-2? You know, is someone going to start asking me, you know, how the Lord is providing us? Is someone going to start looking into our my, my investment portfolio? The answer is that would be absolutely insane. That would be insane. Why? It's by faith. <laughs> it's by faith. So what families decide to do or not do or, or how much they decide to do is entirely between them and the Lord. But it is my responsibility to show you from the text to give you some counsel as you make a decision regarding your biblical finances or running your finances according to what God's Word says. Commanded in the Old Testament, but it doesn't stay there. And many of you are familiar with one of two passages that's repeated in the New Testament. It's uh, taught in both Matthew and Luke. I want to share with you what Jesus himself says in Luke regarding the tithe. Luke chapter 11, verse 42. He's yelling at the Pharisees because <laughs> they're being chuckleheads. And uh, they're trying to prove how awesome and amazing they are. And he's basically saying, you're not so awesome and amazing because, well, let me tell you what he says. Luke chapter 11, verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, you give a tenth of mint, rue, and every kind of herb, and you bypass justice and love for God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. First note from this passage. The Pharisees were priding themselves because they were tithing or tenting from their herb gardens. That's actually crazy. That, that, that is them being ridiculous and asking people to do more than anyone would reasonably expect. But what Jesus says is that you should continue tenting. You should continue tithing. But gentlemen, you have neglected the heavier or greater matters of faith and the law, which is justice for people being kind, being gracious, not asking people to do things that they can't actually do, and your love for God. So you're like majoring in the minors. Like leave your herb gardens alone. Or if you want to, continue tenting or tithing from your herb gardens because it is an important principle. If, if, if this is all that Jesus ever said, which it kind of is, about tenting or tithing, I feel you have to take it seriously. That he is, in fact, endorsing the practice of tithing for those of us who understand that God provides us everything. But that we are not to pride ourselves or think that we're better than other people because we give away a certain percentage of our income and neglect things that we would all agree are more greater or more powerful New Testament biblical principles such as justice and love. So the question is for us today, if I, if I want to bridge the hermeneutical context here, take, take from the scripture and apply it to 2019, exactly where River Church is at, I began the sermon series by reminding us how the Lord has provided for us quickly and powerfully to be in the position that we are in today, which is the outright owners of two and a half acres in the heart of Jewish City. It is the most beautiful place in Jewish City, I believe, right now, with enough funds to begin getting very serious about applying for building permits and site permits 
and lining up contractors in the hopes that next summer we will be able to build. What does is, what is this practice of tithing have to do? We've all been through building campaigns. Most of us have been through building campaigns where the leader gets up front and identifies a very large amount of money that should or needs to be raised so that the project can move forward. They then produce a thermometer, and the thermometer starts out white or black, and then it slowly gets red as people give money, and then the redder the thermometer gets and the closer we are to building and red. The Lord has put something very, very different on my heart for us, and I want to share that with you this morning, now that I've had a few weeks to kind of bring you up to speed with my understanding of the biblical text and our finances, and specifically tithing. God provides everything. He reserves a portion for himself. There's a priority for that portion, and there's a percentage as well. We've been through that. So what does that actually mean? What it means is that I don't think we should get a thermometer out. I, I, I don't think we should um, try and get all whooped up and, and excited about raising an awful lot of money and then saying we're going to do the same. I think we should be more concerned about raising faith and responsiveness to God providing for us and allowing Him to continue to provide for us by faith. So what am I saying? Do we need to raise some money in order to build next summer or as the Lord provides for us? We absolutely do. We're off to a good start. We need to raise more. No one's surprised by this. And I'm speaking very bluntly right now. I'm just speaking very transparently. And I, I think in general that this will be so, what has the Lord put on my heart? Well, I think we should express our faith in the Lord and our joy in His provisions for us by tithing, understanding that when we respect this principle and obedience from God's word, that He will meet all of our needs, just like Abraham said would happen, just like Jacob said would happen, just like we see happen time and time again. Let me uh, share with you uh, a testimony from a River Church family. Our family motto for the last couple of years has been, The Lord's taken us this far. Won't He continue to take us to the next step? This is the story of this family, this River Church family, is our story too. That's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, it's that the Lord has taken us this far. Won't He continue to take us to the next step? We've seen time and time again where He shows up in a big way, in the perfect timing, to provide exactly what we need. Raising a family on a single income isn't always easy, and we try our best to be good stewards of our finances. We know we won't always be able to go on grand vacations, and sometimes it means getting certain events out because of the cost. Because we serve an awesome God, we have seen Him bless our family and provide for things we didn't think were possible. One such blessing includes a recent family vacation that turned out to be free. As our family continues to grow, our prayer is that we will remain obedient and continue to put our faith in Him that He will provide all of our needs. I want to encourage us this morning at River Church to do exactly what this family testimony says, that we would continue to put our faith in Him and that He will provide all of our needs. So this is exactly what I feel we should do in September I feel we should make decisions of faith. I feel that we should each, over the next few weeks, talk with our spouses, talk with our families, identify what we are currently giving to the Lord. That's one number for many of us. 
identify what it's like for you. For many of us, that would be a second one, a slightly larger one. Subtract those two numbers, and that's a new number, right? So let's say you're the average family in Bristol, and you make $48,500 a year, rounded up to $50,000. You've been giving, so that would mean if you were to give a tenth of your income to the Lord, that would be a tithe of $5,000 over the course of a year, which is roughly $100 a week. How are we doing? Tracking with me? And let's say your family's been giving like $50 a week. Thank you. Praise the Lord for, for your faithfulness. So what I'm saying is the difference between what you're currently giving and what a tithe would be would be $50 a week. What would happen at River Church if we took that amount, that delta, and said for each week in the month of October, four times, that that would be our price to the building fund? $200. Continue doing the $50 a week that you're currently doing. But by faith, Tithe for one month and tithe the difference as your pledge for the building fund. What will the Lord do? Would we find him faithful in your personal finances? Would we find him faithful in the River Church finances? Would things be able to move forward? By faith, I say yes. Is everyone tracking with that? So what I'm saying is, forget the thermometer. Let's raise faith. For one month. Let's raise faith. And I think a little bit of accountability helps with this. And so I've printed up some simple cards. They are 100% anonymous. If we could distribute those so you guys can see what I'm talking about here. On one side is a proposed picture of our facility. On the other side is one very simple faith-based statement. By faith, I pledge X amount of dollars towards the building fund. And what I'm recommending is that you figure out where your pledge is by what your tithe would be, or the difference between what you're currently giving and your tithe would be for one month. And then in November, do whatever you want. Do whatever the Lord shows. If the Lord provides for you as he did for Abraham and Jacob, then I would consider recommending that you continue tithing. If he doesn't, then don't. And we're done. That's the building campaign. It's one of the craziest things I've ever heard of in my life. Because whatever the amount comes in that the pledge is, it's nowhere near enough. It's nowhere near enough. But what happens if we raise faith? What if we place that first? And here's why. We would all agree that 20 years from now, I, you know, we're all 20 years older. I'm probably not here serving in this capacity. We've turned over the reins to the next generation. What would that generation consider a greater blessing? The fact that we raised 200000 $300,000, or the fact that we all increased our faith and became families that were passionate about making a testament, making a proclamation that the Lord provides for us. I will tell you right now that generationally, 20, 30, 40 years from now, by raising our faith level, the finances will sort themselves out and our children will rise up and call us blessed. Don't break the piggy bank. Don't, don't take out a credit card and get a cash advance. Don't raise your savings account. Don't empty the 401k. Just identify what one month of tithe would look like. And then can we let the Lord do what the Lord wants to do? That's the thing. Some of you might be saying, well, I don't give anything for a church, so you're talking about a chunk of change. 
then I would suggest this. Do what you can, but do it by faith. Do what you can, but do it by faith. And I would just humbly submit this one fact that comes from Financial Peace University, that if you can't live on 90% of your income, you're in serious trouble. And, and there are probably other issues that need to be resolved in your finances and in your spending habits, and those issues probably need to be prioritized. That if you can't live on 90% of, of what the Lord is providing for you, then other decisions need to be made, like new jobs or spending habits, bigger conversations. And those conversations are best had in the context of people who know what they're talking about and have helped families make these decisions, and that would be in Financial Peace University. So if you're not currently giving anything for the church, it's okay. Do what you can. Do it by faith. And maybe what you need to do uh, as, a, as, a, as a statement of faith for the month of October is start going to SBU. Like maybe that is your pledge to the building campaign. That's fine. Let you experience financial freedom and the Lord's power. That is a faith-based decision. Let's prioritize that over any dollar amount that you may or may not be able to make. For those of us that uh, are currently tithing, then what is true in our lives is that we're already experiencing the Lord's provision and blessing in some way. And we probably have the room in our budget to make a pledge that would be by faith. And so we should consider doing that. For those of us who are already giving beyond that, that we're tithing and we're being generous from time to time, there is another level that's called sacrificial. And so for some of us, the ones that, that the Lord has blessed in that way and that are, are running their finances that way and giving their heart to that, then I would consider making or praying about making a sacrificial contribution for one month for the month of October. And let's allow the Lord to be found faithful here uh, in our finances. How are we doing? I have never just dropped, like been that real about such a sensitive subject ever uh, from my amazing platform. Uh, so, so I'm going to do something that I've never done before. Uh, and I understand where the time is at as well. Um, if you have questions or concerns, let's talk about it, right? Let's talk about it, because I'd be happy uh, to encourage you. Uh, but I want everyone to feel the freedom that comes from knowing that there is no big, crazy thermometer showing up in the future that as important as it is for us to raise some money so that we can move forward, we're going to prioritize faith. Quietly, anonymously, for four weeks, and allow the Lord to do what the Lord is going to do. So, as you have time to consider what that might mean for you and your family, we'd love for you to place those cards uh, in the offering plate over the next few weeks. And uh, come October, the sermon series is going to move on. We're going to stop talking about finances. We're going to start talking about something else that will continue to hear testimonies. And then on our birthday, um, the first Sunday in November, um, we will celebrate what the Lord has provided. So we'll announce what the pledges were that came in as soon as that wraps up in late September, early October. And we'll receive those pledges as they come in through October. And then during our birthday party, uh, which will be following church the first Sunday in November, we'll announce. We'll celebrate the Lord's faithfulness to us. And we'll move on uh, based off of the Lord's provision for us and our faithfulness. And so that is the big challenge. That is where things are going. I hope you feel relaxed and calm about that and you're not stressed out. Um, I feel very comfortable with that, knowing that we're prioritizing God's word uh, above any of our own objectives with that, I'm going to ask the worship team to join me as we wrap up our time together this morning. If you are not a Christian, the greatest testimony or proclamation that you can make this morning 
is that you're placing your life, not just your finances, in the care of our Heavenly Father by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And while I've spent a lot of time talking about money today, I want you to know that the most important decision of faith that we're going to make in September and the greatest testimony that we can have is when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and, and live a life of repentance in front of Him. And so I hope you found this encouraging and exciting as I have. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, it is our desire to place you first in everything. You have provided us a hope of eternal life. You have provided us forgiveness of sin. You have provided us the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You have provided us the counsel of your word. You have provided us the fellowship and the prayer of the saints. Will you not provide in all things for us? Have you not already done so? Father, we pray that you would find us faithful, that you would find us fearless, that first and foremost we would place ourselves in your care, that we would be quick to acknowledge our shortcomings and quick to offer our praises for your forgiveness. And Father, I 